Uh, if it's your first time here again, we're so glad uh, to have y'all here at the church. I'm John, one of the pastors um, here, and just, yeah, we're grateful that you would choose to uh, spend your day with us. Just a few things before we get started. One, um, I did just want to say, since I'm not going to be up here for a while, uh, I just want to thank you all as a church. Uh, me and Chandra, uh, my wife and I, we've been overwhelmed in the way that y'all have loved us and supported us um, and cared for us as we've brought our daughter home. It's been uh, fantastic to sit back and not have to do anything um, and to take advantage of some of you by asking you to do things that I could do, but uh, y'all are more than willing to do. So thank you for that. We're so grateful. Um, and I say all of that, one, so that you know how much it means to us, but two, so that you know uh, there are a bunch of other people in the church that are getting ready to have babies here in the next few months. Raise your hand if you are getting ready to pop here in the next few months. Yeah, yeah, we got Toy, Toy and Dan, uh, Sophia and Paul, Renette and Paul. I thought I saw you all there. If they're not there, maybe they already had the baby. No. Yeah, uh, so I just want to say the same way that you all have loved us and cared for us. Uh, well, we ask that you would do the same thing uh, with those here. Just so many op 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 opportunities um, to serve. And then lastly, as we pray and get ready to dive into God's word, um, I just want to bring to y'all's mind uh, to put a little color to what uh, Mo prayed for. Many of y'all know Ken and Sophia. They got married a little while ago. They were expecting um, their son. Well, they got a report from the doctor when they came back from their honeymoon um, that there is a, a 5% chance that the baby will survive. Um, she started to have contractions. And um, so we are just praying for healing. It's just been a rough, rough go for them. And um, we just want y'all to have that in the back of your mind so that as sure as y'all serve those and rejoice uh, with those who rejoice that you would be reminded that as a church, one thing that we do is we are called to mourn with those that mourn. And if the worst takes place, we don't want them to deal with that by themselves. They shouldn't um, have to. So let's go before our Lord. Let's pray. Um, and let's go to his word. Heavenly Father, you're the creator of all, uh, which means that you know how things work, Father, because you made them work the way that they do. Uh, you're creator, which means that you're in complete control of how things work and the events that uh, take place in our lives, Lord. Uh, with one word, situations can change completely, Father. And since we don't know your mind, we don't know your will, we don't sit here trying to guess your will, uh, but we know that you're a good God. We know that you're a God that heals. We know that you're a God that desires to heal, Father. And so we don't pray uh, bashfully, Father. We pray boldly and ask that you would heal, Father, that you would bring a favorable report to Ken and Sophia. Um, doctors have been wrong in the past, Lord, but you haven't been wrong. And so we ask, Father... Um, yeah, that there would just be a good re report. Lord, would you please heal? You're a God that heals, and we ask that you would do that. Father, right now as we sit and we prepare 
um, to dive into your word. Lord, I pray that we would store up the truths of your word for the dark days that are coming in our own lives. I pray that you would bring to Ken and Sophia's mind um, all of what you've taught through your word, that they would be able to have an anchor in the midst of this tumultuous time, Father. Uh, Be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start off with a question. It was a question that we asked probably seven months ago when we started off this book. And the question that I ask is, what are you living for? What are you living for? We're in church right now, so I know that a lot of us in the back of our minds would say, I am living for God. And I don't want to let you off of the hook that easy. What do you live for? I think that you can find out what you live for by asking yourself two questions. We live for things both actively and we live for things passively. And here's what I mean by that. What are you working for and what are you waiting on? Those two things will make it crystal clear what it is that you live for. What are you working for? What are you trying to build? Think of this like the construction of a building. If a building is getting ready to be built, it's largely dependent on how hard somebody works. If you want a house built, it's all about timeline. And the timeline is based on if the builders are going to work hard and they build. What are you working on right now? Right? We all come into this world trying to find a sense of fulfillment As sure as bread is made for the stomach, our soul is searching for something to make us full, and we spend our time trying to work for that. What are you working for? Is it a job? A promotion? The house of your dreams, cultivating a friendship, a project that you have on the side? All of us are working on something. What is it? But life is a whole lot more than just trying to work for things. You and I have to wait for things as well. Building a building is all about how hard that you work. But growing a tree has nothing to do with how hard you work. It's all about waiting. Like growing a baby, right? Our daughter came home and she was premature Um, And so my mindset is, all right, you've just got to eat more than the rest of the babies. And we're just going to keep on feeding you so that you can grow. But things don't work that way. You have to wait on it. What are you waiting for? Waiting for a spouse to come your way? Maybe you're waiting for kids. Maybe you have kids and you're waiting on your kids to grow up and leave your house. (laughs) Waiting on graduation, waiting on promotion, right? Life is all of this working, waiting. I work real hard to try to build stuff and I'm waiting for my dreams to come to fruition. But here's what I want you to see and here's why we decided to go through the book of Ecclesiastes because all of that working, trying to get full, it never stops, Once you get what it is that you worked for, do you know all that's left in store for you? 
more work to keep it. Once you get what you've been waiting on, right? We've been waiting nine years for kids, and now we've got a baby, and I'm waiting for that day where she doesn't cry at 3 a.m. And then when they get there, you'll be waiting until they learn how to talk. And then you'll wait until they learn how to be quiet. And you'll wait. And life is just this mix of working and waiting, working and waiting over and over and over. And what you find out very, very quickly is that the odds are stacked against us when it comes to finding fulfillment in this world because we always work, we always wait. But we never get what it is that we work and we wait for. The garden of your ideal life is littered with disappointment. Nothing is as good as we thought that it would be. And the Bible starts off and tells us that this came. This is a result of us being in a fallen world. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because sometimes we can use these Christian terms and not really grasp. The world being fallen, it's figurative, but it helps if in your mind you take it literally. If you have a bowl and it falls, it breaks and it cracks. And if it breaks and it cracks, then what that means is that it leaks. Try as hard as you can to drink out of a cup that has a crack in the bottom. And what you'll find out is that you work twice as hard to get half as full. Nothing stays. If you fall and break your leg, fracture your leg, what, what, what you'll quickly find out is that your leg cannot support the weight that it once did because it's fractured. When sin came into the world, it, it, it cracked our world to where nothing holds the joy that it should. It fractured our world where if you try to put the weight of your joy on anything that you find here in the world, it'll crumble under the weight of that. You put your joy and your hope in your kids and you'll crush them. You put your joy and hope for all of your fulfillment in your spouse, you'll crush them. You put your joy and hope and fulfillment in your job and it will crush you. The world that we live in is fallen. It leaks. It's fractured. But you and I were designed for fulfillment. So the question is, how do we find fulfillment in a fractured world? That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you would, we're going to close it out today. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12. It should be on page 362 if you use the little paper Bibles that are right underneath you. Here's why we decided to go through this book last fall, because 2015, when our church started two years ago, that year was full of a young church experiencing lots of death, from brothers to friends to parents to church members. And it was just a depressing year. And then 2016 came, and there was lots to rejoice. 
And what can take place is, is if we get so depressed in life and then good things start to take place, we can overcorrect and put all of our hope in all of those good things. But if we put our hope in all of those good things, it will crush us and let us down. So we started this book to help curb our expectations as a church on what to expect in a fractured world. Here's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's, it's the duct tape for a broken cup. It's a cast for a broken leg. If you have a broken leg, it immobilizes you and you feel like I can't move. But if you put a cast on, then what that cast does is it doesn't quite fix your leg, but it gives you the support that you need to limp along and to keep on moving. That's what this book does. It it doesn't resolve or fix things about life that's broken, but it provides the support that we need so that you and I don't spend our time loitering and drowning in depression but that we get up and we walk and we live, even if we have to limp along this life. Ecclesiastes is a book about how to find a full life in a fractured world. Let's start back in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, and I just want to set a little bit of context. It says this, the words of the teacher, son of David, the king in Jerusalem, the guy that writes this book wants you to think of Solomon, a guy that had it all. There are books of the Bible that are designed for how to get what you want out of life. This is a book written by a man who had it all, but still felt like I need more. Verse two, absolute futility says the teacher. Absolute futility, everything is futile. He just starts off, and the judgment that he makes is things are meaningless, empty, frustrating. I work and I wait. I wait and I work. I get what I want, but I find out that I still want more. He shares the same uh, experience that all of mankind shares about life, and he's trying to get to the bottom. Verse 3, what does a person gain for all of his toil that he labors under the sun. He just says, what do I get for all of my work? And one thing that you see is that throughout this book, he asks questions and all the questions that he asks are rhetorical questions. What do I get? He wants us all to see, well, nothing. So we get down here to the end as he tries to answer this question. How do we find a full life in a fractured world world, and I'm going to tip my hand. My sermon in a sentence is this. The fear of God is the key to a full life in a fractured world. The fear of God is the key to a full life in a fractured world. Three things that I want us to see here in the text. Very first thing, if you want to find a full life in a fractured and a broken world, the very first thing that you have to do is you have to learn how to rejoice. You have to learn how to rejoice. Look here with me in chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it's pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. He's saying every day that you get up and the sun intrudes into your bedroom through the slits in your blinds, it's a blessing to wake up and and to see the sun. Being alive, though it may be frustrating, it is better to be alive than dead. And what he's saying is, it's a good thing. Verse 8, indeed, if someone lives many years, 
let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Verse 9. Look. Rejoice, young person, while you are young. And let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. He starts off, and when he tells us how we should live in this world, the very first thing that he says is that you should rejoice. It's not a uh, suggestion. It is an imperative. It is a command. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We grew up in homes where your mom would tell you to clean your room, and you say, Mom, I don't want to clean my room. And she would say, oh, I wasn't making a suggestion. This was a command. Do you know that the Bible calls us to rejoice? It commands us to rejoice. This, is, this lies on the pathway to finding f- fullness in a fallen and a fractured world, rejoicing. He's saying bad times will come. And the way to prepare for bad times is not like you prepare for somebody that is getting ready to punch you in the face. You brace for it and you wait for it. That's not what you do. What he's saying is the best way to prepare for bad times is to rejoice in the good ones. Rejoice. And he says, "Yo, do this while you are young. Rejoice. Dark days will come. But while you're young and in your youth, rejoice. Look here at the end of verse 9. And let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. Look here and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. Do you know what that is? That's God giving you permission. When you think of the will of God, what do you tend to think? I think most people, when they think of the will of God, they tend to think of the restrictions that God gives. When people think of the Garden of Eden, do you know what they think of? The one tree that God said not to eat. And do you know what they don't think of? The fact that God's will for Adam and Eve when he made them was here. I want you to enjoy everything. Eat as much of it as you can, any tree that you want, but just don't touch this one tree. Most of us, when we think of God's will, we think of some narrow path that he has us on, but the Bible never talks about God's will like that. The Bible, when it talks about the will of God and us finding the will of God, it talks about present obedience But there is a freedom that you and I are granted to live the lives that God has provided for us. When the Bible talks about marriage and trying to find a spouse, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 says, stay away from this type of girl. Proverbs 31 says, this is a template of the type of girl that you should want. And there's plenty of them. Ladies, it gives the picture of a kind of man that you should want. And it is not, God is not on this path to get you to an arranged marriage as if, 
ah, I missed God's will. Now I don't know if I'm ever going to find the person that God has. No, there's a freedom. God gives boundaries and says within these boundaries, there's boundless joy. So when he's saying, you know, follow your heart, walk in the ways of your heart, what he's saying is one of the good gifts that God has provided you to rejoice in is the fact that you are free to choose. You're free to choose your career, projects that you want to work on, things that you want to do, friends that you want to have. The first thing that we do to find a full life in a fractured world is we're reminded to rejoice in the good things that God has provided. If there's anybody in the world that should be able to use the things that God has provided to rejoice in, it should be us, shouldn't we? But if you let the church tell it, it seems as if we're a group of people who only live lives staying away from things that are bad, and that was not God's design creation of the world, and that is not God's design for you right now. Dream big. Pursue your dreams. Run after them. Enjoy it while you do it. But at the end of verse 9, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. There are boundaries. God has provided you a credit card and says, spend it on life, but know at the end of the day, I'm getting the statement of what you spent it on. Enjoy. Part of rejoicing is one, to look at these good things and to go after them, enjoy God's very good gifts. But another part of rejoicing is choosing not to do something. Look here at verse 10. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. What he's saying is don't waste time that you should be celebrating complaining. Are you the type of person that when people come to you sad, they leave with a smile? Or are you the kind of person that when folks come to you with a smile, they leave sad? Are you the type of person that always has something to complain about? What I'm not saying is, is there something to complain about? There is. There's always something to complain about. But just because there is, it doesn't mean that you have to be the one to complain about. The Lord Jesus constantly brought people close that were sad and weighed down in a broken world and sent them away cheerful. This is somebody that knows what it is to rejoice. Are you so busy fixating on the brokenness of the world that we're in that you take for granted the very good things that God has provided you to rejoice in? What he's saying is if you want to live a full life in a fractured world, put that away. That there are times where we have to just step back and rejoice. Act our age. How are you rejoicing? Parents, 
your kids are getting a picture of life and Christianity from your perspective, would they come to this conclusion that God wants us to rejoice? Or are you so consumed with the things that you're working for and waiting on that they think Christianity and a relationship with God is something hard and frustrating, like a nine-to-five job they're going to have one day that they don't want now. One of the best things that we can do with our youth and with the youth of other, other people is to remind them to rejoice. I've got great friends, and what they do with their kids each night is they sit down and they say, hey, what's one thing that you want to thank God for? And as they done this from a young age, what they've started to teach their kids is that even in a fractured and a fallen world, there's something to be thankful for and there's somebody responsible for that and let's thank God. And do you know what that does? Slowly it builds in their heart that we serve a very, very good God that gives very, very good things. If we want to live a full life in a fractured world, the first thing that we have to do is to rejoice not to, not to keep us, sort of blind us from hard times, but to prepare us for those hard times, to be reminded those hard times will come, and when they come, we'll mourn. In the meantime, let's rejoice. But here's what a fractured world does. Here's what this, this hard world does. A hard world tends to, make, tends to give us these very, very hard hearts. And when we actually do start to rejoice, the mistake that you and I make is that we overcorrect. And now we put all of our hope for joy in things that won't support that weight. So he doesn't stop there. The very next thing that he tells us to do is to remember. Look here at 12 verse 1. So in light of all of this, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. That word remember, um, we have to differentiate that word from the word recall. Sometimes when we use the word remember, we use it like this. Hey, do you remember that guy that we met at the store this past week? And we think back through, uh, what guy? I met a bunch of guys at the store. Oh, yeah, I recall that guy. Or, hey, do you remember that one part in uh, the, the movie where the bad guy won? And we sit back and say, uh, let, let me think. Oh, I recall. At the end of the day, all that that is is a piece of trivia that doesn't affect the way that we live on a day-to-day Basis. It's something at the back of our mind that we bring to the forefront when somebody prompts us. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is, I want you to remember your creator in the days of the youth the same way that you remember to look both ways before you cross the street. You've done it so much that it's instinctive because you know if I don't do this, one step could be the end of it. In the same way, people cross over from death to life 
with each breath. And so what he's saying is with every breath that you take, especially in your youth, especially in the prime of life, do this. Remember your creator. Notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say remember your God. Remember your Savior. Remember the Lord. But he'll use this term, remember your creator. Why does he do that? I think that he does it for a few reasons. One is this, that a creator is somebody that makes it all, which means that he owns it all. God is creator. Whenever the Bible brings God as a creator, it's meant to establish that God has complete control, that he can say how things work. Not just that he owns it all, but this is a God that though he owns it all, he shares it all with us. He gives it to us. So we don't just rejoice in the fact that life is good. We rejoice in the fact that life is a gift, that God has provided it to us and he didn't have to. We're reminded that God is creator because it helps us to grasp that he's an expert on how things should work. He has a purpose to life. If we have trouble with life, it's his email address that's in the contact us section. When he says creator, he wants us to remember all of this is God's and God just gives it to us. He wants us to know that above all, we belong to somebody. And listen, there is great comfort in knowing that we are on our own. We belong to somebody. The first question in uh, catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism is not what's the meaning to life? How do we find joy? But it starts off and it says this. And it was meant to instill this in young kids and youth to ensure that kids or those that were young would have the same theology as their mom and their dad. The first question starts off and says this, what is my only hope in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but I belong, body, soul, life, death, to a faithful Savior. The fact that God is creator, it's not just meant to tell us that he has complete control, but do you know what it's meant to do? It's meant to remove anxiety from all of our hearts because we're reminded that we're his. And so what he tells us to do is to remember this in our time of life, in the time of life when you and I are prone to forget it. Do you know what youth and strength and good times do? They make us believe that life will always be that way. But it won't. And so as sure as he tells us to rejoice in the good things that God provides, he tells us to remember our creator in the days of our youth, before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. And then he goes on and he gives this poem. And do you know the poem that he gives? He, he, he talks about all of these things. 
he talks about old age. Look here at verse 2. But for the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. It's a picture of a storm that sweeps in where after the rain is done, what you and I expect is that the clouds would leave. But he said, no, 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 no. These clouds are going to come back. And so he starts off and tells us to remember our creator so that we know all those things about God, but that you and I are reminded about something true about you and I, and that is God stays the same, but you don't. God is the creator. He'll be sustained, but you're a creature or creation. So do you know what that means? There is going to be a time where your body will break down. Look, look, look here at verse 3. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble, that's meant to be your strength, those that guard this house. On the day when your strength's not as much as you thought that it was. And the strong men stoop. And the women who grind grain cease because they are few. That's teeth, right? As he goes through this, he's like, oh, there's going to be a time where this house that we're in, those things that grind grain for, for, uh, for you, you're not going to have quite as many as you had one day. And it's going to be harder for you to eat. And it's going to be harder for you to gain the strength that you need to do all of this work. And he just goes on and on and on and puts in poetic fashion Old age, look here at verse 4. The doors of the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. That in our house, it's the, the house that is our body. It's going to be harder and harder to heap things that go on. When one rises at the sound of a bird, old people get up early. Amen. And all the daughters of song grow faint. There's something about folks getting older where, ladies, regardless of how dainty and sultry your voice is now, there will come a time where you're going to get a little more rasp to it. Verse 5. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. When an almond tree blossoms, the first blossom is white. There's going to be a time where the beautiful locks that you have right now are going to be white if they're there at all. The grasshopper loses its spring. Look right here. The caperberry has no effect. The caperberry was a thing that was used at this time to stimulate, most scholars believe, sexual passion or just hunger. And what he's saying is there's going to be a time, and this is why, just a side note, this is why sex is the worst God to live for. Not just because it won't endure past this life, 
But even in old age, it won't be all that you hoped that it would be. For the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home and mourners will walk around in the street. Time goes on. Your body's going to break down. You're not going to have the strength that you once had. People will mourn you until verse 6 and 8. Remember your creator before, right here, the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. That just paints this picture of the lamp of life. Though precious, there's one day where that precious cord will snap and that bowl that holds your life will crack and things will be done. St. Augustine says this, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance. What he has not promised is tomorrow to your procrastination. So what he's saying is there is a time right now in the prime of life, you should rejoice. Rejoice in all the good days that we have, but know that if God tarries as the years go on and on and on, it's going to be harder and harder to rejoice in some of those things because you may go out and play ball and come back home and find out that at 32, you have to stretch before and after you play. You go into the gym and folks turn around and smell and they say it Smells like Ben Gay in here, and you know that it's you, but you join in just because you don't want to feel old. What he says here at the end, look here at verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God. Who gave it? God is creator, and one day God's going to take back what's his. We have to remember and not make the mistake that anything that we have is ours. Every breath that we have is borrowed, and one day God is going to take it all back. While we have it, we rejoice, but we remember that it's his. In verse 8, absolute futility, says the teacher, everything is futile. And what we get here is what's called an inclusio, right? The book starts off with those words, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I work and I wait and life feels so empty. And then he takes us through these 12 chapters. And at the end, he sits back and he says, wait a minute, regardless of how hard I work and I wait and how hard I wait and I work, one day, I'm just going to fold in with the rest of creation. I'm going to die. I'm going to have to return back. 
And do you know what? For a time when we die, people will mourn our death. But do you know what will take place with all the people that mourn our death? They'll die. People will mourn them, but they won't mourn us and know us. And sooner than we forget, we'll be forgotten about. But there is one person that will never forget about us. Our creator. And so what he's saying is, as you rejoice in this good thing that's called life, remember that you have a creator. The world will forget about you. So it's senseless to spend all of your time trying to gain the approval of people that will themselves forget about you or die and the memory of them will be forgotten so their opinion is temporary. Why do we spend so much time longing to be seen as something in the eyes of creatures while we forget the very creator that gave us life and is requiring it back one day? What he's trying to help us see is it's senseless. So as sure as you rejoice, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because one day it's going to be harder for us to put our hands to the plow in the way that we have. And in this way, he advocates for this spiritual muscle memory. Yeah, I played ball my whole life. And one thing that you learn very quickly Um, is that the best shooters are those that have spent the most time repeating that same pattern over and over and over. So you look at a guy like Steph Curry or Ray Allen or Reggie Miller or John Anwachekwin, what you'll find out, (laughs) what, (laughs) what, what, what you'll see is this. Come on. They spent so much time, listen, while they had life in their lungs, so much time when they weren't tired practicing the same thing so that in the fourth quarter, when they are tired, it's the same shot. They don't have to think. It just goes up. And what he's saying is for everybody that would say, I'm going to wait until I'm older before I really start to take God seriously. Seriously, what he's saying is you do that, you'll fail in the fourth quarter. Here's what you have to do. While you're young, while you have life, remember your creator. While you have life, love your Bible. Read it. Study it. Know your God. God has gone to great lengths. This book was put together by 40 people over the span of 1,500 years, and it has been preserved for you so that you would know this great God. You give your time to it now, and it'll pay off later. You neglect it now, And there is going to be a time where it's going to be harder for you. People that are faithful in their old age to the Lord are people that invested their youth 
wisely. With such a young church, there's so much to rejoice in. There's so many good things that we can spend our time on, and I do want us to do that. But in the same way, I want us to work to remember our creator. How are you doing with that? How does your friend group do with that? When you reinsert God and your creator into instances where people are wilding out or being real, do they view that as an inconvenience? Do they view you as a person that always has to take it there? What he's saying is rejoice in the good things, but take it there. First key to living a full life in a fractured world is to rejoice in all the good things that God gives us. The next key is not to put our hope in the things that we rejoice in, but to remember our creator and the fact that we are not him. Here's the last thing that he tells us, to be reconciled. Be reconciled. Uh, when I was in college, I was a business major, um, and I had to take two years of accounting. Well, really, I had to take one year of uh, accounting, but I had to take it twice because I didn't get it the first time, but two years, so it really sank in. There's this concept called reconciliation, and what that is is there are two divergent statements there's a bank account, there's a balance sheet, and what you have to do is make sure that one lines up with the other, right? And so what this does is it keeps us from squandering things. It keeps people from stealing things that aren't theirs. And at the end of this, his conclusion about what it is that we gain out of life all has to do with being recognized reconciled back to God. Read here with me, verse 9. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. Word to the wise. What they says here is he was so impacted by the wise words that he was trying to say that he didn't just put himself in the place where I'm a truth teller, and I don't care how it comes out. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Nor did he put it himself in a, I just want to say things beautiful, and it really doesn't matter what I say. Uh, I just want to say it nicely. What he's saying is, I'm so concerned with this truth that I want to put it in a way that's appealing so that people would get it. The sayings of the wise right here are like cattle pride. And those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. Here's what he's saying about this whole book so far. There's been a lot of things that he says that have stung, that have hurt, that feel frustrating. And what he's saying is this book is not meant to bring you to depression. This book is meant to give you direction. He's trying to push people somewhere. And here's where he's trying to push them. Verse 12, but beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. Let the college students say amen. 
what he's saying is, and this, this comes from a book lover. People can pontificate on things forever. I started a doctoral program in um, August of 2012, and part of what I had to do was I was trying to pick what I uh, was going to write on is I had to read dissertations. And what you find out is that, like, anything you want to study, you can study that one thing for the rest of your life. There are people that have wrote dissertations on the use of one word in the Gospel of John. Hundreds of pages, like, things can just go. And what he's saying is, I want you to know, especially as you try to navigate this world and try to find fulfillment and joy, there's no end to all of the books that can be written. I want you to know that as you think about this concept of justice, there is no end to all the books that can be written. There's no end to all the things that folks can say about how we're to do what and how we are to engage with the privileged or the under-resourced or what's the right way to this. What he's saying is that will go on and on and on, not to neglect those things, but what he's saying is if you give yourself to try to find every answer, it's, it's, it's just going to weary the body. 13, when all has been heard, when all the accounts have been settled, the conclusion of the matter is this. He's saying this is, this is life. This is the key. This is what lies at the baseline. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity or this is the whole duty of man or what he's saying is the privilege aren't exalted above this. The under-resourced aren't exempt from it. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. And look here how he ends. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every thing, whether good or evil. I want to put this book and our time into perspective just a bit. This book doesn't end with a statement or an assertion. It doesn't just end with a command. He gives that command, fear God and keep his command and keep his commands. Why? The book ends with a conclusion, an event. This book ends with judgment, a coming judgment. And here's where things are put into perspective. This book doesn't start off with a question. It starts off with a judgment, meaningless. Things are meaningless. Life is empty And then from there, he asks a question, but it's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is not really a question. It's meant to make a statement. So if I asked you, who in here is perfect? 
I don't expect anybody to raise their hand. I expect you to know that I mean none of y'all are perfect. So when he starts off and says, what does man gain from all of his work? What he's not saying is, I really want to know. This is not a journal where he, as he gets to the end of the book, he's like, now it makes sense. This is somebody that knew from the end what he wanted to say. And I think that this book ends off with judgment because it puts him back in his place and it puts us in our place. He starts off making a judgment about the world. But in the grand scheme of things, the judgments that you make on the world mean very little. Because at the end of the day, we are not judges. We are defendants. He makes a judgment about the meaning of life, and it's hard, and it's empty. But he says at the end, ah, but the most important thing is not what I think about life. What the most important thing is how God judges my use of the life that he gave me. The words that he gives, the commands, are simple. It's not a whole bunch that we have to recall of what God has called us to do. What he says is this. Everybody, here is your task. Fear God. Orient your life around him. Take every word that he says seriously and do it. And keep all of his commands. John 14, Christ will say, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. What he's basically saying is, look, the whole duty of man, the reason why you were made is to be reconciled to your Savior, is to be in right relationship with your God. That's going to be the thing that brings you fulfillment in life. Question. How well have you done at that work? How well have you done? At those two things, fearing God, taking every word that he says seriously, and keeping his law. Do you know what we all have to sit back and say? I haven't done it completely, but I've tried really, really hard. But then he goes on in verse 14 to say, no, no, listen. But this God is not just going to accept he tried really, really hard. He has screenshots of everything, all the good, all the bad. And this God that is going to judge us on a perfect standard, do you know what it does to all of us that would admit that we're sinners? We have to say, I failed this test. We would have to say, yes, the world has fallen, the world is broken, but I do not deserve to be in relationship with this great God. As a result of my sin, I've spurned God and I've spurned my only hope for any type of lasting joy. And do you know what that does as we look at this life? It puts life under the sun into perspective as you and I are forced to look beyond the sun. As we look at eternity, we're reminded that the good that we had in this life, it was good, 
the bad that we had in life, it was bad and it was worthy to be mourned of. But all of it is going to be inconsequential one day. So while this book may provide a cast for us to make the most out of the life that we have, God is going to judge us based on how that we use this life. Do you think of God as a judge? Does that cross your mind as you think of Christianity? Does that cross your mind as you think about your life, on your job, the things you do in the dark when nobody sees, the ways that you respond to people frustrating you? Does it cross your mind that God is a judge and he'll actually judge us? He has to if he's good. The first 11 chapters of your Bible are meant to lay the floorboards for how we should think of a life in this world. And do you know what we see? God judging sin in Adam and Eve. God judging sin in Cain. God judging sin in flooding a whole earth. God judging sin in people trying to take his fame. Do you know what you see at the end of the Bible? The great judgment where God judges the entire world. So this fear that it talks about, it's much more than a reverence of God. It is knowing one day you and I are going to be judged. And with that kind of a judgment, who could stand? And this is where Christianity gives us something better than the shallow optimism of what some might step back and say, just look on the bright side of things. What Christianity does is it reminds us that as sure as this world is fractured and broken and it leaks and it's not going to hold our joy, there was somebody that came to fix things and to make things better. 2 Corinthians 5, it'll be up here on the screen as we close out in our time. I just want to read this for you. We've just been in a book that time and time again has said this. There is nothing new under the sun. Or from a worldly perspective, things stay the same. But look here in verse 16. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. And it's just saying, hey, it's just Paul saying, hey, when Christ was here, we looked and we saw him as just another guy. And what he's saying is that's not the case based on what Christ has done. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, listen, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be 
reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul's saying is that we found ourselves in this world. We didn't ask to be here. And our humanity, the fact that our death will come, shows that we're part of the cycle of things coming and going and coming and going. And we work and we wait and we wait and we work, but we never get what we hope for. We're never brought back to God because we've messed things up so bad because of our sin. Jesus came, and do you know what he did? He broke the cycle. Jesus came, and with a world that folks would look at and say, there's nothing new, I've seen that before, he came in and stepped in and he said, this is new. Somebody that actually did what God had called them to do. And not only is it new in that Christ did it, but it's this new kind of love in that Christ died for us. He substituted himself. He's not just a teacher that shows us the way to God. But God's word says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true and living way. Here's what that means. Years ago, I worked at the sports camp. And as I was trying to drive to get to, to, to the camp, um, they didn't have street signs. So folks would say, hey, yeah, you got to drive down here. You got to turn right when, when you see the cow, turn left at the fence. And so I get there late at night one time, and I don't know how to get to where I'm going. I'm lost. I don't need somebody to tell me the way to go. I need somebody to come and get me and to take me where I need to go. This is the beauty of what Christ has done. He doesn't just tell us the way to go. We can tell you, fear God and keep his commands. That's what he's going to judge us on. The problem is nobody can traverse that pathway. We need somebody to come and get us. Jesus has. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's where fulfillment in this life comes from, from being reminded that that's where our hope is found. And so the question that I want to ask as we close is how does what you work for and what you wait on change in light of that truth? What I'm not saying is that you change your career, you change your job, you change the goals that you have. But what I am saying is as a result of Christ bringing us back to himself, one of the beauties of the life that we have now is that we get to spend our lives doing the exact same thing. There is no more important work than joining God in his work of reminding the world that there is a way to find a full life in a fractured world, and it has nothing to do with the money that you have. It has nothing to do with a mate. It has nothing to do with how big your house is. It has nothing to do with how much you've accomplished. It has everything to do with the relationship that you have with your God that created you. And Jesus is the only pathway for us to recover that. My prayer is that as a church that we would use our youth and freedom in the life that we have to build that into our hearts and to take advantage of every relationship that we have 
to point people to that same end. Let's pray. Father, as life um, does get frustrating for many of us, I ask that you would remind us that uh, you are consistent, Father. You're our source of hope. Help us to be hopeful, to rejoice constantly, to know that you have things under control, to be reminded that you are our creator. We owe our lives to you, Father. We haven't lived as we should, but your son lived um, in our place, Father. Help us to rejoice in that truth and to spend our life uh, uh, preaching a message of reconciliation. It's in Jesus' name we pray.